Hey everybody, on our last episode, we were talking about all of the different groups that not only you know are within investment banking, but we also tried to situate the investment banking division within kind of the colossus that is these big banks, not just explaining you know what all of these groups are and like kind of the names of these groups, but also a little bit about what they do. And I hope that if you listen to that episode, that your conclusion to the question of, you know, are all investment banking jobs the same? I, I hope you came away with the conclusion. The answer is no, they are not. They're all actually like surprisingly different. And then came away asking the next question, which is how do I differentiate between them? And that's what we're talking about today. Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. I want everyone to kind of come into this episode thinking about, okay, like what are these different investment banking groups? And not only that, but what are the pros and cons? So last time we focused on qualitatively, like what is involved in doing each of these jobs. But now I want to answer a slightly different question, which is, let's say I'm evaluating across groups, across firms, across roles. I want you to think about the question, you know, what does this do for me? What does this do for my exit opportunities? What skills am I going to learn in this job? And how are those skills different from what I might get in a different investment banking job? And so that's what we're talking about today. And where I want to start with this is, you know, what I'll call Maslow's hierarchy of finances. I want to talk about the building blocks of, you know, senior leaders in finance. And I want to also talk about which elements of these skills are the most marketable and have the greatest market value as you think not just about getting promoted and moving up the ranks, you know, in whatever position you're applying for, but also thinking about exit opportunities and what is the range of all these other things that you could do because they're interconnected. Ultimately, your compensation where you work is in large part going to be determined by the compensation that you could get going somewhere else. And when you think about negotiating leverage, when you think about rising in your career, that is something that you should constantly be thinking about. And so where this all starts is just intellectual curiosity and attention to detail. I strongly suspect that if you're here listening to this, then you can check that box and you have it. Not everybody does, but that is absolutely critical for advancing further up the pyramid. Next step, jargon, corporate finance and accounting and Excel skills. And for those who are just listening to the podcast version of this, I do have a presentation. I'm sharing my screen that you should be able to see wherever you're, you're listening to this podcast. Um, but basically, we are just walking up this pyramid. You can imagine the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we're walking slowly up the pyramid. And as we go further up the pyramid, each of these skills are things that are valued more highly at more senior ranks within the firm. So now we've, we've talked about intellectual curiosity and attention to detail. We're talking about jargon, corporate finance and accounting, and Excel skills. These are the things that are going to get you your internship and are the types of things where you know, you'll know you be quizzed on in an interview. In a lot of cases, you'll be expected to know a lot of this stuff, again, going into that interview process, and then really hone, refine, master these skills through the internship and through you know first-year analyst training and the start of your time as a first-year analyst. These are really important building blocks because you'll get quizzed on these basically across the spectrum of, invest of investment banking jobs. But starting here, now things start to differ a little bit because the next kind of core thing 
And by the way, if you are a 24, 25, 26 year old, the number one most marketable skill that you can have going into an associate role, you know, at an investment bank, hedge fund, private equity fund, venture capital fund is, you know, this combination of modeling skills, deal process experience and understanding and market knowledge. These are the building blocks of things that every kind of classic investment banking analyst gets through those two years. And they get kind of all three of these things in spades. And that is the number one reason why those are kind of like the most sought after, most competitive roles. If you're working, you know, in an M&A function or in a coverage function that has M&A responsibilities, you will have to build financial models. You'll have to build valuation models for companies. And that modeling skill is extremely highly valued in the market. Now, depending on what type of firm you want to do, what type of thing you're looking at, deal process is also really important and valued. And market knowledge is important and valued. I will say, though, that those two things get a lot more valuable at the senior ranks. Those, you know, someone who has expertise in those two things can only be developed with practice and with reps. And oftentimes, if you're only two years into your career, you'll have some basic understanding of these things. But it's really not until you're moving into that, you know, senior associate, VP, principal level that you'll really have expertise in these things. And that builds eventually into deal quarterbacking, being the person who can execute and understand every component of a potential transaction. And then at investment banks particularly, and especially the really well-known ones, you'll also, in addition to this deal quarterbacking, develop professionalism and client focus. These are two traits that are absolutely critical if you want to advance from kind of a mid-level finance professional to a senior finance professional. Professionalism really is just understanding what a high quality work product looks like. It's understanding the difference between, you know, passable advice and differentiated advice or, you know, a reasonable thesis and a thesis that is actually kind of a good one will lead to a good investment outcome. Um, and then client focus is, you know, along those same lines of just being responsive to people you know, being someone who can be relied upon and who people trust for, you know, whether it's investment judgment or, you know, potentially, you know, investment advice, depending on the role again. All of this, now we're getting to the tippy top of the pyramid. The last two things here are investment judgment. So this is the ability to really, you know, put your money where your mouth is and have, you know, perspectives that are not just interesting and valuable, but the right decisions and the right judgments. And then, you know, at the very top of the pyramid, once you have all these things, it's network and sales. Um, at the end of the day, if you are running your own private equity fund, your true success is going to be determined by how much capital you can raise. You know, if you are, you know, generating 3x returns where you're tripling your investors' money, but you only have a one, you know, a hundred million dollar fund, it's a lot of money. It's a great outcome for you but it's not nearly as good as a 2x return on a $10 billion fund. And so ultimately, you know, being the person who can bring in capital for your firm is the thing that is, you know, that is, is the thing. And then, you know, in investment banking, being a partner, you're expected to bring in deals to your firm. You're expected to be the one 
um, you know, who can go to Fortune 500 companies or go to, you know, whatever kind of ideal client you want to work with, and you want to convince them to work with you. Um, and so at the end of the day, network and sales, it's, you know, building like and trust and getting people, um, you know, to put money behind you and bringing in business for your firm is more highly valued and ultimately is more important at a senior level. And when you're thinking about responsibilities of senior folks, even than deal execution, bringing in new business is more important than deal execution. Now, if you're not executing deals, if the VPs who are working for you are doing a poor job, then it'll be a lot harder for you to get that business. Um, but at the end of the day, sales and your network, these are the end all be all number one things that you want to build towards in your career. By the way, this is a really interesting reason why you don't necessarily need to start your career in investment banking to be you know, a partner in a big private equity fund. It's a lot harder because you have to find your right wedge in. You have to overcome that modeling deal process market knowledge, and you have to lateral in through some other you know, series of circumstances. But at the end of the day, if you are a persuasive speaker and you have a strong and powerful network and you've developed investment judgment, possibly through operating experience or through some other experience, you can do this. You can skip those lower steps if you get to the top. It just is really hard to get to that top if you haven't climbed the ladder progressively. So now I want to talk about, you know, for these bulge bracket banks with separated M&A groups. So this is where their kind of classic, you know, investment banking function is divided into having a coverage group and an M&A group. And then they'll also, you know, at the bulge brackets, they'll have, you know, financing slash product groups. Um, I want to talk about to the extent that each of these groups checks all the boxes in the pyramid. So I want you to basically translate all of these components of the pyramid. And what I really want to comment on is to what extent will you as an intern or as an analyst be developing skills, important skills in each of these functions? that are particularly important at the junior level. So again, not every bulge bracket investment bank has a separated M&A group. Goldman is one notable example um, that has them combined, but Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citi, among others, do have it separated. So if you are in that M&A group, um, I basically divided these categories into a check plus, which means you are just getting inundated with this stuff. A check, which means you definitely do get strong exposure to it. Um, a squiggly, which means you, you know, you get some familiarization with it, but you likely aren't leading that work stream. And then an X, which basically means you, you, in most cases, just don't get, you know, a lot of exposure unless you really go out of your way um, to go find it. Like as part of your regular way job, you are unlikely to get exposure doing that thing. So in the M&A group, you can see lots of check pluses across the board. Um, I, I gave just a check to client focus in part because you aren't owning the relationship with the end client. You're kind of the, you know, the SWAT team, the execution team that is just focused on the deal. Um, and, you know, obviously client focus is really important in all of these jobs, but you aren't quite getting that level of focus and understanding the broad array of strategic financial conversations 
that other bankers in your firm are likely having with the company. Um, and then I also only just gave a check to sector knowledge, just because you might be working across sectors and just working on M&A activity kind of wherever it is. And then capital markets knowledge, if you, you know, want to understand the nuts and, you know, the nuts and bolts of where is this money coming from? If you need financing to get a deal done, how mechanically do you do that? What are the types of things that, you know, debt and equity investors would care about? Um, this is something that you definitely, you know, there are inputs in your model, but in a lot of cases, they're abstracted away from you. Um, coverage groups, again, lots of check pluses here. Um, you know, the differentiation here is you do get that client focus check plus, um, but the valuation modeling and the M&A deal process work. If you are, again, in a bank with a separated M&A group, you will be involved in those conversations, but you're not leading them. You know, you're not like the analyst driving the model. You're, you know, aware of the model and you might even be looking at it. You might be contributing to it, but it really is that M&A group that is leading that push in a lot of cases. So I'm giving you just, just the check instead of the check plus there. So um, exit opportunities are, are pretty much limitless from either of these. You can see there's, you know, checks and check pluses all over the board, but insofar as you are trying to differentiate between these, I hope this is a helpful rubric for you. And then lastly, talking about financing and product groups at these bold brackets, um, you'll see some more squigglies here. So M&A deal process, um, really the only way you would get exposure to this is if you are working on, you know, multiple financings that are related to M&A activity. And same thing with kind of the corporate finance and accounting. Um, You'll you'll get a lot of this, and there might be a lot of forensic work you'll be doing in like 10Ks and 10Qs, but the kind of, you know, building a fully flowing three-statement financial model is something that is only tangentially important and usually isn't absolutely core to the thing you're doing. You're usually focused on, you know, one component of, you know, the capital structure and the balance sheet, but you might not be quite as focused on you know, all of the things that are going into, um, you know, your income statement, particularly above the EBITDA line. Um, I important caveat here is that leverage finance, which you'll hear abbreviated again as LevFin, sits within these product groups. But because they are pretty much ex almost exclusively working on, you know, financings to help sponsors and private equity funds acquire other businesses, they actually are getting kind of a lot of this valuation work, a lot of this deal process work, um, a little bit more indirectly, but they still are getting a lot of it. And so um, I just I just want to caveat that some of these squigglies and X's actually should be checks, probably more checks than check pluses, but you know, they are they are checks um, for LevFin specifically. Next, let's talk about bulge brackets with a combined, um, you know, basically the M&A group and the coverage groups are the same group. There is no separate um, M&A group. So here I'm calling that classic. So um, Goldman Sachs is kind of a, a classic example of this. Barclays, another example. There are others. Um, effectively here, I think the financing and product group roles, it's, it's pretty similar uh, to the, the last slide. But these classic groups, like there's a reason why Goldman investment banking is so sought after. And it's that you really get, you know, pretty much entirely check pluses across the board. 
um, with, again, some exposure to that capital markets knowledge. But because you're not driving that process, like that is the one thing, like there's no check pluses everywhere. Um, but that is probably the closest to it. Just taking a step back and talking about some of the advantages of going to a bulge bracket, basically either of these last two concepts versus a boutique investment bank. So if you were working at a bulge bracket, I think high profile clients and deals is definitely an advantage, particularly over some of the middle market investment banks and some of kind of like the banks that work with, you know, smaller transactions and smaller deals. The global perspective is really important, especially if you are maybe, you know, someone who is international or who wants to work and live abroad. I think that global perspective is definitely, you know, helpful and valuable. The brand recognition, um, you know, it, it's important to some people, particularly, if, you know, brand recognition outside of the industry. Uh, though I will say, you know, within the industry, it can matter sometimes from an alumni network perspective. But it really is kind of, you know, if you want to, you know, explain to, you know, someone, you know, like an MBA admissions program, you know, the difference between Barclays and, you know, some, you know, smaller investment bank, like they'll, they'll care about that. Um, and you know, the network scale and the size of your analyst class. Having a large analyst class, first off, is great because especially if you're, you know, moving to New York or, you know, wherever you're working for the first time, like that's a little bit of your friend group. It's your, you know, the group who you'll commiserate with, learn from, get to know really well, work long hours with. And having a large analyst class actually can be kind of a really nice thing. The other really big advantage of the bulge bracket is just the consistency of the experience. And look, there are up markets and down markets and year to year, these things will fluctuate. But if you were working at, you know, Morgan Stanley, you were going to get deal experience. And it's sort of, you know, it doesn't matter what year you join or what group you join, like you were going to get that experience that you want to need. And you're going to get some really high quality training while you're there. In a way that if you're going to a smaller firm that might only take two or three or five analysts every year, or maybe like not even always, you know, take new analysts every year, the consistency of that education might fluctuate a little bit more. And then the last thing I want to talk about is just breadth of financial advisory work. So if you're working in a bulge bracket, you're not just looking at M&A activity, you're looking at IPOs, you're doing anti-raid advisory, capital structure um, you know, advisory, helping companies like actually raise money. Um, you're working on FX and risk strategies. You're kind of spanning the gamut of all of the financial topics that, you know, that clients could want to know about in a way that if you are at a boutique, there might be a little bit more kind of segmentation and focus on kind of the specific areas that you see. So I want to, I want to, Contrast that to boutique investment banks. And so some ever, you know, some examples here are Evercore, Centerview, Perel Weinberg. There are a bunch of these, but these are like really elite, you know, high performing boutique investment banks. And basically you'll see that this kind of coverage financial advisory, uh, looks a lot like the, you know, the classic investment banking, but just you really often are out of the loop on capital market stuff. Um, so that, that gets a solid X, but absolute check plus on everything else. And as you're thinking about exit opportunities, as you're thinking about the question like, oh, well, like how actually important is capital markets knowledge? The answer is 
for most things that people want to do in investing, whether it's at a hedge fund or private equity, it is not super important. It, it matters in a lot of things, but you can learn that on the job. Coming in with that capital markets expertise is valuable, but not nearly as valuable as some of these other things, specifically valuation modeling and M&A deal process and kind of like sector understanding kind of all these other things. So um, just worth knowing that the big drawback of working at a boutique investment bank is first off, you don't have to worry about the financing group. Like they just won't have that. And you won't really get much of that capital markets knowledge because you often will be, you know, mandated as a financial advisor alongside another institution. And that, you know, big bank will be leading all of the kind of capital markets workflows. And, and you know, as a boutique, you likely would be not working quite as much on those. Just to, you know, differentiate again, the, you know, boutique investment banking advantages. The M&A emphasis is the number one advantage. And look, like a lot of these firms do have a restructuring practice too. Emphasis varies by firm, but whatever group you're joining, like the focus really is on deals rather than, you know, broad advisory that includes deals. The entrepreneurial culture can be another, um, can be another huge advantage for people who really like that, which is to say, um, at a smaller institution, politics unfortunately matter pretty much everywhere, but they might be a little bit deprioritized because, you know, the it really is about, you know, what deals are you bringing in and what deals are you working on? Fewer relationship-driven projects. This I, I put as an advantage because you will often hear first and second year analysts complaining about client service projects that you're working on. And this is just the reality of working at a big bank is sometimes you will do free work or you'll even do sometimes unsolicited work uh, for clients just to demonstrate your you know, knowledge and expertise and continue conversations and keep conversations warm with CFOs that you might be interested in, you know, in, in working with and making sure you're top of mind for them when a transaction does come. Whereas for the boutiques, they are a lot more transaction focused and they are a lot less likely to do kind of that kind of broad client service work. Um, another, you know, boutique investment banking advantage is that these teams aren't always staffed quite as thickly. And so that can mean more client interactions, especially, you know, for, for analysts and associates where if you're going to a particular client meeting, usually the bank will say, hey, like we can't have an army of bankers overloading this team of, you know, three to four people at the company. And so Max will bring three to four people. But if you work at a boutique, you as the analyst or, you know, junior associate might be more likely to be included in that group of three to four. And then compensation can vary more. Again, this is a little bit firm dependent, but the bands are often wider at boutiques, meaning like the top tier bonuses can be higher um, and the bottom tier bonuses can be lower at boutiques. And so there, you know, there is more upside, but there's also potentially more volatility in, you know, in bonus and, and comp outcomes. So that's the end of this presentation. I hope you found this helpful. Please let me know follow-up questions, um, anything else that comes up in the chat. And I hope that this is a really helpful rubric. So if you're, you know, debating, do I take this, you know, 
RBC, you know, M&A job, or do I take this Bank of America Levfin job? I hope that this presentation and kind of the way I've laid it out and walked through it gives you a rubric at least for knowing, you know, what components of that job will be the check plus or, you know, the check or the check minus. And then even thinking about, you know, different types of firms, thinking about, you know, what advantages or disadvantages your choice now has for the rest of your career. So thanks so much again for listening and we'll talk again soon. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases and much, much more. We'll see you next time.